Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Kirsty Major, Commissioning Editor here at The Independent, and this is Double Take, a podcast in which our writers come into the studio to read and discuss one of their opinion pieces. It could be their weekly column, or something from the archives that shines some light on this week's news. Today is going to be a little bit different as we're jumping straight into the discussion part of this week's show, as we don't want to waste a minute. We're joined by Richard Power Said, author of 1997, The Future That Never Happened, A look at why that year was a turning point for British culture and society, away from a fairer, brighter future and onto the path to our current malaise. And, as you might guess on the other side of that debate, is our chief political commentator, John Rentoul, author of Tony Blair, A Prime Minister. So thank you for joining us today, Richard. Thanks very much for having me. You're welcome. So you have a new book out, which is 1997, The Future That Never Happened. I do indeed. That's John's favourite year, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so we also have John Rentoul with us. Things can only get better. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what the book is about? Yeah, absolutely. So 97 was this year of extraordinary hope and promise. It was Tony Blair coming to power. It was the Spice Girls being the biggest band in the world. But, you know a feminist band it was uh you know in in terms of what new labor was up to it was uh you know kind of finally people were paying attention to the stephen lawrence campaign it really seemed like that was going to be quote unquote a watershed for race relations that's the phrase people used to use um and uh, of course, you know, there was this awful tragedy of Princess Diana dying, but it really seemed like Tony Blair was going to, you know, take advantage of that and use it to modernize the monarchy. Uh, it seemed like there was going to be this potentially kind of more egalitarian relationship between the citizens and the establishment. And, you know, that was even there in things like Britpop. You know, Britpop had been really cool for a few years, but now it was exploding into it was completely mainstream. You had no guy going to parties with Tony Blair it was a moment of hope but things didn't really work out so well so it's a book about that extraordinary optimistic time and it's about why there was something potentially quite reactionary at the heart of that and why things went so wrong in the last 20 years and what was the reactionary element of it for you well I mean, partly it's about New Labour being like fundamentally extremely unambitious. And then partly it's about the way that they often took advantage of radical ideas and radical people. And this wasn't just New Labour. You know, it was it was a whole broader culture that was very much embracing radicalism, but very superficially bringing it into the mainstream, really defanging it, stopping it from achieving the kind of fundamental changes that were really necessary. And I think that's part of why people now are so angry and so resentful and why we're experiencing enormous upheaval. And John, unambitious? Is that, is that a term <laughs> you apply to new labour? Well, I, I couldn't disagree with Richard more. Um, I mean, because, you know, in 1997, was a, it was a very significant year. It was a very significant change. Uh, and the Labour government achieved 
uh, very significant things. I mean, the fact that you know some of them uh, didn't work out very well uh, doesn't mean they weren't uh, worth trying. And the fact that we've ended up with uh, with Brexit is um, you know to do with long-term historical forces and actually underlines the point that uh, that New Labour was built on, which is that uh, Britain is a very conservative country, and if you want to be uh, electorally successful uh, in Britain, you do have to uh, recognise that. You have to start with the British people and where they are and build from that. And I think New Labour did that extremely successfully for 13 years. What do you think the most successful thing about New Labour was then? Or the most radical thing? Well, transforming the uh, public uh, sphere, uh, renewing public services uh, and um, transforming uh, gay rights, uh, women's equality, um, and making people feel comfortable with uh, a, a mixed, uh, a, a mixed cultural society. I think all those are huge steps forward. Um, which you know, it may be that I'm just very old, and so I see the glasses half full, and Richard is very young and sees the glasses half empty. But for me, you know, 1997 was the end of a long period of Labour being in the wilderness. And the period after that was a period of modest social democratic achievement. And, uh, you know, obviously, people like Richard were uh, disappointed by the, uh, the high hopes that they had in, in 97. And I think that, uh, uh, that those high expectations were in the end, um, the cause of a lot of the unhappiness with new Labour that's happened since. We were sold a dream that didn't quite work out is that, is that how you feel? Well, I mean, I think you're right that maybe it can it can be unfair on any politician to project such extreme and intense hopes onto them and then to be disappointed when they don't turn out to be perfect. I, I mean, that's completely true. Um, and, um, you know, I will admit that, um, you know, sometimes this debate becomes extremely polarized in a in a way that actually maybe doesn't reflect kind of how people really feel. So, you know, people on the left, people like myself, you know, while not denying New Labour's successes, because I don't think that most people on the left do, they do make, you know, what is sometimes a polemical argument um, that focuses on the many, many failures. Um, and that's what I do because those failures had a huge impact and, you know, perhaps really crucially, it seems clear to me that the solutions that we need now are not those of New Labour. Indeed, the, the solutions we needed in 97 were not those of New Labour either. And I want to warn people away from thinking that somehow that kind of extremely mild, you know, quote unquote, social democracy with some very reactionary elements, the idea that that is the solution. And, and, and people on the Labour right similarly make a polemical argument that only acknowledges the successes and gets very upset about any mention of the failures and and tries to use that analysis to of the past to support policies that have not worked and are not going to work now so as i think everyone knows when we're talking about new labor and 97 we're also talking about what we should be doing now and that's very topical because actually today, John and I, we've been talking about a blog by Luke Akehurst about how to get rid of momentum. <laughs> and his whole point is actually momentum is going to be a really big failure. They've gone as far as they can. Peak momentum was his phrase, I think. Yeah. And actually, we need to get back to proper social democratic values and the hard left have hijacked the centre left policies. But I think what Richard's saying here is 
those policies are kind of defunct and didn't work first time round. Would you oh, agree? Well, no, no, of course I wouldn't agree with that. <laughs> no, I think those policies did work the first time round. But I think obviously you have to move move beyond them. I mean, the whole point about New Labour was permanent revisionism. I mean, that was what it was about. And Tony Blair actually said, I remember him saying, um, you know, some someday some guys are going to come along and say you've been doing it all wrong and this is how uh, we ought to achieve uh, the ends for which the Labour Party uh, was founded, which is what Labour, New Labour was doing. Jeremy Corbyn's come along with a very different model uh, for achieving those those similar ends. Um, and I think what you're talking about, um, Luke Akers' article, I think his point is that you know, Jeremy Corbyn is going to be succeeded by someone from the so-called soft left, from the middle of the, the party, not someone uh, with Jeremy Corbyn's politics exactly, but certainly not someone who, from the old, um, the old new Labour politics either. My point is that, you know, I don't, I don't think Labour is, is going to go back to new Labour. I think mm-hmm, it will go mm-hmm. on to, to something, something else, which will be some kind of synthesis between, uh, between what new Labour was stood for and what um, Jeremy Corbyn stands for. Do you think that we'll reach a synthesis or do you want a Labour Party which fully rejects the sort of marketization forces which took hold under Blair? I mean, the reason that the soft left would uh, potentially uh, have the leadership and therefore control of the party um, after Corbyn would be that the right leader was there at the right time. Um, and, you know, uh, for those who are not optimistic about uh, Jeremy Corbyn's chances of becoming prime minister sometime in the next five years, um, well, then... I think it's probably quite clear that uh, that the people who would potentially succeed him are those who are either of the soft left or who are willing to pretend to be. Um, And uh, I I think we can all imagine who I'm talking about here. (laughs) Um, uh, And and um, you know, and those um, individuals are exceptional political operators. Um, But actually, I think there are lots of reasons for thinking that uh, Jeremy Corbyn can win the next election, in which case you're going to see not just a transformed Labour Party, you're going to see a transformed Britain. Well, that is, of course, where I where I differ from you again, because, you know, that would be to to mis, mislearn all the lessons of history since 1997. I mean, the, the point about, uh, you know, uh, New Labour is that you know, if you think that you can build a Labour Party on rejecting everything that New Labour stood for and everything it achieved, then I think you're heading for disaster. Because I think I think a a government built on on that kind of politics uh, would be very bad for the country. Uh, it would lead to economic uh, disaster and meltdown quite quickly. I wonder if we're slightly kind of confusing symbolism and rhetoric on the one hand, which can often uh, you know, people like to talk about Jeremy Corbyn's manifesto as being revolutionary because it kind of suits people on the left to say we're really going to transform things, and, and it suits people on the right to say this is terrifying. Don't go anywhere near it. The, manif- no, the well, manifesto, of course, the manifesto is this- was, was was a terrible. I thought it was a terrible manifesto, which actually did very right. little for right. inequality. 
Uh, and I thought that, you know, if you actually could, were cared about inequality, you should have voted Lib Dem last time. But, the, but your problem with 97 is that it wasn't transformational enough. And you're saying that what we need is a politics that is transformational, that somehow abolishes the market and transforms Britain into a socialist society. Definitely I'm saying, not saying you we can are. Abolish the market. Well, good. In that case, then we can have a sensible debate about social democratic reform and how to progress. And we can get back to what New Labour was doing. Uh, with uh, with obviously new meth new methods and new policies for for new times. So I think what uh, what Corbyn represents is a decisive shift against marketization and towards not just state intervention but also cooperative economic structures. Um, and that's you know for a lot of people on the left that's a first step. Right. Well, if, sorry, Richard, if you think that what was wrong with the, the new Labour government mm. in 1997 was that we didn't have enough co-ops, <laughs> then I'm sorry, but that's not going to that's not going to work. That's, there, there is going to there is not going to be a, a political groundswell of support from the British people for a government that's going to introduce um, more co-ops. I, I mean, don't think anybody's suggesting that uh, cooperatives are a, a massive vote winner. What's being suggested is that they're an exceptionally uh, egalitarian democratic and, and often very efficient way of organizing economic life, which have been immensely successful across the world. Which is why there aren't very many of them uh, anywhere. Well, co-ops aside, we're, we're no, getting come to on. the... In Southern European agriculture across South America, there's lots in Northern Europe. Cooperative uh, structures are extremely successful. And the point is that they root economic success in social justice. And that's the, I think we're getting to the nitty gritty of it, which is the relation to the market, because under New Labour, it opened the doors to the market in, no, as a way to no. develop revenue in, in its own opinion to help the welfare state. No, it sought to control the market for, for the ends of social justice, which is what, um, which is what Labour, you know, the Labour Party has always been about, so uh, apart a... from the, you know, the Marxist uh, tendency of, of people who actually want to abolish the market, which I think is, is a waste of time. Um, and would never, would never win an election. Now we're going to pause for an ad break before we jump back into the discussion. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You have a really interesting chapter in your book about this, about Gordon Brown and mm. his relation mm. with the banks and deregulation. So I don't think that we could describe the relationship of New Labour 
to to the city and to the financial services sector as being one of controlling the market. I think that very clearly what happened there, uh, and this was you know this was following on from what the Tories had done. Absolutely, it was only continuing a Tory policy, but it was about it was restraining the market um, from I, what the Conservatives had done because Thatcherism was all about uh, unleashing market forces and privatisation and so on. New Labour came in, uh, imposing a, a one-off windfall levy on the privatised utilities uh, and making sure that uh, the, the proceeds of a successful market economy were spent on uh, renewing the public services, okay, in so particular the, 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 the NHS. And the if you, sorry, levy. Richard, if you think that doubling real spending on the NHS was a failure, then I'd hate to see what a Corbyn type government uh, uh, success would look like. Okay, so let's stick to uh, financial services because utilities and the windfall tax on that, however wonderful that was, uh, are not very relevant to uh, deregulation of the city. The point is that uh, when the Bank of England reforms uh, were undertaken, the FSA, the Financial Services Authority, was set up. They were specifically told, we know this because Adair Turner, the chair, told us this in the um, Economic Affairs Select Committee, Adair Turner said the FSA was there to be light touch. It was not supposed to oversee the um, the broad corporate plans of any banks. So we know that in supervision of individual institutions was incredibly light touch, appallingly so. And that's why we didn't see RBS and uh, Northern Rock as the immense dangers they were. And on the other hand, the systemic risk so that's the um, that's the risk that happens that that emerges when uh, when banks become codependent because they're all lending so much to each other and therefore one RBS or one Northern Rock can bring them all down. That systemic risk was left to the Bank of England. This is all in the '97 reforms that happened under Brown and Balls and Alistair Darling. The Bank of England was left to look after this systemic risk. There was a culture of completely not caring about systemic risk. Uh, in the bank and actually in the treasury as well. Um, the Bank of England had no powers to deal with this. They were only allowed to publish a report every now and again, and they didn't care about doing so. So what you've got there is after Thatcher and Major have deregulated the city, Brown and Balls and Darling continue to do so. They do so in a way that, I mean, I don't want to do a kind of told you so, but the fact is there were a lot of people telling them don't do this. It's incredibly dangerous. And I don't think there were. They, I mean, there were. They were just on the left and nobody listened to them because they were apparently old fashioned and useless. And they turned out to be right. Yeah, they turned out to be correct no, no. because the crisis came from that collision of the systemic risk and the individual banks taking massive risks. Yeah, and and and, and, and you know, I'm happy if we if you maybe you want to kind of blame it all on Gordon Brown. Tony Blair supported it all. I don't care who whose fault it is. The point is, that's where so much of uh, so much of the incredible damage that's been done to this country in the last ten years comes from. Well, I'm afraid you do sound just like a Tory. Um, I mean, you you're you're suggesting that <laughs> what, the financial, the financial deregulation crash is was caused thing. by the Labour government in Britain. No, I didn't not. say I didn't say that. I said it was caused American by deregulation sector. throughout. No, the, it was called, it happened it happened in America and had had knock knock on effects here, which could not have been avoided, however well regulated the city had been. Obviously, the regulation was not perfect. It didn't happen in other it, big financial centres, did they? Well, because 
because, because they were so a much bigger financial center and that had been extremely successful for we become a dependent upon that financial sector because of a highly financialized highly leveraged low-skill economy which again is not new labor's fault it was something which was created by thatcher developed by major and never in any meaningful way uh undermined by blair and brown I don't, because you, you of you know our lovely, that, because of our, because our lovely um, what is it um, post neoclassical endogenous growth theory this um, nice idea of Gordon Brown's that uh, we were going to just focus on developing high skilled workers and that was Precisely, going to which trickle is the opposite down. of what you've just said which is that we were running a low skill economy but it with, didn't with work highly it didn't, leveraged no, finance, point, no no it was about sector, focusing which, on a small number of high skilled workers and then the idea was that. Um, growth and productivity, that wealth would trickle down. No, no. The, the idea that new labor is in favor of trickle down. I no, mean, that's you can't no, no. even You're find a supply side of trickle down economics. economics. This is, <laughs> this is a. Let John finish his point. Trickle down economics is, is, is an insult that you apply to conservatives. It's, it, and, and, and it doesn't even apply to them because because you it's quite hard to find even an American conservative who who would actually endorse the phrase, and to apply it to la to, to 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 a Labour government in this country, I think is just is 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 just wrong. I mean that is not what anybody uh, intended to do. That was not the model, the economic model that New Labour was following. New Labour was following a supply side driven model of raising the education and training uh, levels in this country, in order to produce a more egalitarian. Uh, outcome. The fact that they weren't as successful as you would have liked in terms of equality um, is is a difficult question to do with the fact that you know, modern economies have 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 huge differentials, differential pressures built into uh, in, in, into the earning structure. Obviously, the returns to higher education are increasing all the time. Therefore, you know, in my view, New Labour did extremely well to prevent inequality from rising. It seems very clear to me that. In the economies where you don't just have high skills concentrated in a very small number of people, as in ours, which is what this uh, post neoclassical endogenous growth theory is about, um, if you want to create an economy that where where those high skills are spread much more, uh, which is what broadly, New Labour did with more, expansion no, 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 of the no, university no, sector. Much, I mean, which... I think it's generally considered to have not been terrifically successful. The, the countries where you have that working much better are countries with strong trade unions, because in a country with strong trade unions and labour regulation, which is forced, which the state is forced to enact by those trade unions, you therefore have workers who can say to their bosses, "You've got to train me." Bosses can't get rid of their workers. They've got a financial interest in having highly skilled workers. Which if you don't have strong these... trade unions, and and Labour did not strengthen trade unions, which was an appalling mistake, and it was a um, it was a it was a disloyalty to the Labour movement. Um, that's that's you know that's a fundamental way that you improve skills and therefore improve productivity. It's extraordinary that they didn't try to do that. Well, yeah, except I'm afraid you know you, it's completely understandable given the history of uh, trade union, the trade union movement in this country. I mean, I'm you know I was alive in the 1970s when uh, the economy hit the wall uh, because of the breakdown of uh, of industrial relations, which was you know mostly uh, it has to be said the trade union movement's fault. Uh, and you can understand why 
why a Labour government would be would be sceptical about strengthening trade unions after that. Um, but I don't disagree with you. I mean, I think that's that. I mean, I think trade, you know, successful trade union movements in in Germany and um, and some of the Nordic countries, you know, do work extremely well. But it's mm -hmm. very difficult to import that culture into Britain. So before we, we're going to round up now, before we round up, I feel like we're all social democrats in the room, right? <laughs> different, different stripes, we're all social democrats. Is there a path that Labour, is, is, is there something from the new Labour years that we can build on, whether it was an unfulfilled promise or in, in your opinion, John, a, an actual concrete policy? What do you think the, a Corbyn Labour government could build on, John? Oh, well, I think... It, you know, you've got to learn the right lessons from from the disappointments that came after after ninety seven. And I, you know, it, you know, again, I say, you know, I, I, my glass is half full. I think there was a lot of a lot of good was was achieved, but you've got to learn that actually achieving a more equal society is much more difficult than it seems. That's what New Labour was trying to do, and the fact that it wasn't uh, totally successful. Um, means that you have to think more cleverly about about how to achieve it instead of uh, instead of rejecting the whole new labor approach as as flawed richard uh where do i start with this i think that if we ask ourselves where are many of the radical demands or uh, in Britain coming from now. They're coming from a lot, of, a lot of the time from young people who grew up under new labor and were, in a sense, given aspirations by new labor. Get, not the kinds of aspirations that we're talking about, kind of Mondeo man, but rather the aspirations of, we believe that a multicultural society, a society where uh, women and gay people are respected, a society where migrants are not uh, subject to enormous hatred and scapegoating. We believe that society is possible. And the disappointment of that society having not actually emerged motivates a great deal of the demands for radical change that we're hearing now. So I think that, you know, New Labour's existence has a lot to do with those radical changes, but it's, uh, it's one of disappointment. <laughs> okay, thank you both for joining us. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening. Please rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, Acast or wherever else you get your podcasts. Helen Hodnoff produced this episode. I'm Kirsty Major. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.